0: Hello everyone and welcome to Reverb. I'm Ben Williams and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Calvin Pollack, Alex Helberg, and Sophie Wadzak. Today we've got a very special Reblurb episode prepared for you all. It focuses on one of the most important conceptual dilemmas in academic humanities, as well as an evergreen source of social controversy.
1: That's right, Ben. Our episode topic today is on publics and counterpublics. Alex, can you start us with a good general definition of what it means to be public?
2: Um, no, I'd prefer not to say. Wait, what? Yeah, why? I mean, well, I talk a lot in my research about these concepts, and I just don't know if I'm comfortable making any of my thoughts on this matter public, you know, until I've, like, published something on it that could maybe help me get a job or get tenure. So
1: you're worried that by publicly disclosing a definition of a very general concept, you'll be opening up your intellectual property for people who
2: would want to steal your ideas? Oh, okay, listen. You're asking a lot of really personal questions right now. I feel like this is a major invasion of my privacy. Quite frankly, it's a little uncivil. I feel like you're not abiding by the norms of good-natured, bourgeois, critical, rational discourse. You know, I've actually brought my lawyer here
0: to. Hey, hey, Alex, there's no need to get lawyers involved here. We're all friends. No one is trying to invade anyone's privacy. We're just trying to help people better understand how we think about the public sphere and how communication happens within it. I mean, wouldn't it be a little too ironic if we didn't want to educate the public about publics? My uh, my client does not have to
2: answer that question. You are engaging in conjecture over their motives.
0: All right, w- whatever. Instead of giving a quick definition, it looks like we're going to have to do a deep dive. Scholars' longstanding interest in the concept of the public is largely traceable to two scholars in particular, Hannah Arendt and Jürgen Habermas. Both Arendt and Habermas were nostalgic for norms of public discourse and public life that had been eclipsed by modern society, with Arendt favoring the norms of ancient Greek rhetoric and politics, and Habermas favoring the norms of the Enlightenment-era European bourgeois public sphere. Hannah Arendt established her views of publicity, privacy, and modern social life in her work, The Human Condition, first published in 1958, In it, Arendt describes how in Greek antiquity there was a clear distinction between public and private realms. The private was the realm of labor and the family, while the public was the realm of action and politics. The private sphere of the home was where bare necessity was taken care of, while the public was where great deeds were done. The central critique the book raises is of the rise of the social realm, or society. Arendt writes that the emergence of society, in the modern period, has changed the realm's meaning entirely from, in the classical period, the private as privative, derived of publicity, and public as a space of action, speech, and deeds, to, in the modern period, private as a sphere of intimacy, and public as society, the social, in addition to the political. Arendt argues that society's ability to swallow up other realms is driven by the science of economics and, quote, derives its strength from the fact that through society, it is the life process itself, which in one form or another has been channeled into the public realm, end quote. In these ways, Arendt's book makes a nostalgic argument for the reclamation of a social structure and way of life from antiquity. Jürgen Habermas's seminal work the structural transformation of the public sphere, an inquiry into a category of bourgeois society, was originally published in German in 1962. At first glance, Habermas's work is primarily a historical narrative, though in its final sections, it advances a few key normative claims. The narrative is primarily set in Germany, France, and Great Britain, with the latter part taking place to a large extent in the United States. Habermas describes the transition in each of these countries from a feudal to a constitutional system of government, and the emergence of a sphere of civil society that mediated the private realms of economy, commodity exchange, and family, social reproduction, from the public realm of government. Habermas terms this formation of civil society the bourgeois public sphere. What made it public despite the fact that it operated outside the government, was that it consisted of a group of people coming together in public spaces outside of the home to discuss ostensibly private questions of economics and politics, as well as both creating and consuming publicly-oriented texts and discourses from printed periodicals to conversations in coffee houses. Habermas notes that within this sphere, Participants engaged in what later public sphere theory texts would term bracketing. They understood that an implicit rule of the discussion should be to disallow considerations of discussant's economic or political status, creating a presumably equal playing field for conversation. Further, participants understood that discussion could involve the consideration of any topic at all, so long as it was publicly relevant and needed to be as inclusive as possible. In other words, discussions were assumed to address all citizens of the society. This sphere depended on the specific form of privacy established in the family homes of property-owning patriarchs. That privacy was perceived to be the origin point for the generic human perspective from which the discourses of the public sphere spoke. This generic human perspective, in turn, was perceived as fulfilling a core moral responsibility to hold people in positions of political power accountable and thus dissolve all arbitrary domination. Habermas acknowledges that, in the exclusion of women, dependents, and the propertyless masses, the form of private subjectivity assumed by the bourgeois public sphere was a fiction that itself necessarily entailed systems of domination. He cites Marx as first articulating this critique in response to Kant, who had established the essential defense of the bourgeois public sphere. If we assume absolute freedom of economic behavior and of speech and thought, then the generic subjectivity of the bourgeois public sphere is legitimate due to its representative's command of both property and education. Marx, in turn, attacked both of these assumptions with a critique of the class structure in bourgeois societies. Because the private realm lacks publicity, various forms of domination are inherent in it. Therefore, it is not legitimate. However, Hammermas goes on to argue that liberal philosophers such as John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham correctly identified an additional threat to critical publicity of the public sphere implied by Marx's countermodel the centralization of power. This centralization is problematic in Habermas's view, because it would presuppose a specific social order as natural and impose it from above rather than encouraging people, the general public, to debate it among themselves in a democratic fashion. The structural transformation of the book's title refers to what occurred in Western countries like the United States and various European nations around the late 1800s and early 1900s. The governments in these countries began to not only recognize negative liberties, freedoms from government interference as in the bourgeois public sphere, but also to guarantee certain positive liberties, such as the right to jobs, fair contracts, healthcare, retirement, and so on via welfare states. These new government responsibilities led to and coincided with the transfer of economic, political, and discursive power from the bourgeois public in general to various large institutions including government bureaucracies, massive corporations and trusts, political parties, political machines, and worker unions. As a result, Habermas argues, there was no longer any discursive public sphere that united a substantial proportion of the actual public. As well, the form of privacy that had once anchored the subjectivity of the bourgeois public sphere, the pursuit of personal or shared economic interests, was replaced by a privacy of cultural consumption and leisure. This latter privacy entailed new forms of domination because it allowed what Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer termed the culture industry, to colonize people's private spaces. Also colonized was the media, which went from, in the Enlightenment era, representing the critical debates taking place in the public sphere to, in the modern social welfare period, propagandizing the public to accept the views of large institutions exercising public power, such as political machines, newspapers, business and industry interests, the military and police, and so on. In the final sections of the book, Habermas advances a few claims about what needs to change for the structurally transformed public sphere to reclaim the initial radical vision of the bourgeois public sphere the dissolution of domination via the subjection of power to reason. First, he argues that the large institutions now exercising public power need to be subject to transparency before the public sphere, internal debate, and democratic leadership structures. Second, he argues that in the same way that property ownership guaranteed the personal privacy of the bourgeois public sphere, New guarantees of economic benefits and public participatory rights in politics must be granted to individuals in order to anchor a rejuvenated citizenry in the new public sphere. Third, and finally, he argues that true public opinion must be generated through a combination of accountability mechanisms for large institutions now exercising political power and transparent dialogue about the activities of these institutions among the larger public.
3: In 1990, the socialist feminist critic Nancy Fraser published a crucial response to Habermas in the journal Social Text entitled, Rethinking the Public Sphere, a contribution to the critique of actually existing democracy. In the article, Fraser marshals revisionist historiography and critical theory to both critique and revamp Habermas' public sphere ideal. Fraser's critique rests on the finding that, in addition to lacking open access for different kinds of people, the bourgeois public sphere's supposed bracketing of status inequalities was enabled by its participants having the social privilege to do so, a fact that accorded with their position atop hierarchies of class, gender, race, and other dimensions of social difference. Fraser points out that Habermas's ideal also ignored competing and conflictual publics that were constituted by subaltern groups of women and working-class people among other groups in which very different discourse norms prevailed. For Fraser, Habermas's public sphere was more than an unrealized utopian ideal; it was the prime institutional site for the construction of the consent that defines the new hegemonic mode of domination, a mode that legitimized an emerging class, gender, and race-based rule in early modern European society. In her critique, Fraser goes on to show that Habermas's notion of, quote, bracketing inequalities of status is not possible in deliberative practice, and that the critical rational discourse norms of Habermas' ideal public sphere actually bake in various markers of white, male, upper-class status. In Fraser's view, these issues reveal how bracketing does not actually serve the interests of democratic deliberation. She then notes that the bourgeois public sphere's assumption of a single public and thus a single public opinion, is inferior to contestation and deliberation amongst multiple publics, in both stratified and egalitarian societies. Habermas's and Arendt's critiques of encroachment by the state and civil society into formerly private matters is also implicitly rebuked in Fraser's account. Fraser argues instead that it's a generally positive social good when formerly private issues become legitimate topics of public discussion and deliberation, as these supposed private issues tend to hold the greatest consequence for marginalized people. In general, Fraser's accounts point to the danger of rhetorics about personal privacy as vehicles for legitimating domination, and she advocates for the expansion of the public to include more discussions of what were formerly thought to be private issues. Fraser's final critique of Habermasian public sphere theory involves the distinction between weak and strong publics. Weak publics, in Fraser's words, are publics whose deliberative practice consists exclusively in opinion formation and does not also encompass decision-making, whereas the deliberative practices of strong publics does include consequential decision-making and the exercise of political power. Fraser generally advocates for the existence of both strong publics and weak publics in a healthy public sphere, according to the logic that the force of public opinion is strengthened when a body representing it is empowered to translate such opinion into authoritative decisions. Overall, Fraser's critique of Habermas was crucial for two key reasons. First, Fraser articulated a feminist, post-colonialist, and anti-racist vision that directly opposed norms of bourgeois-masculinist publicity. Second, Fraser introduced the idea of public as a countable noun, and argued for the normative benefit of deliberation amongst multiple publics, rather than a single, artificially unified public sphere. A landmark turn for scholarship on the role of rhetoric in public sphere came with the publication of Gerard Hauser's 1999 book, Vernacular Voices, The Rhetoric of Publics and Public Spheres. In this book, Hauser argues that we can best conceive of the public sphere as a multitude of publics that share vernacular discourse conventions and argumentative topoi within and among one another. He turned this model the reticulate public sphere, which emphasizes the dispersed exchange of rhetorical discourse between members of various publics. In this view, the public sphere is not a singular totality that can be spoken of as its own entity. In other words, it would be incorrect to say that the public holds any belief or set of beliefs as a cohesive mass. Hauser is critical, for instance, of polling which claims to disseminate data on, quote, public opinion regarding various policy and social issues. For Hauser, these kinds of all-encompassing polls can never fully capture the nuanced intricacies of rhetorical exchange that forge and shape people's beliefs. Rather, they tend to oversimplify and overgeneralize the range of public opinion into pithy, prefabricated statements and diametric oppositions. Instead, Hauser argues that the publics are best understood as sites of discursive exchange, the places and times where people argue, fraternize, or just merely share information that lead to the formation of common meanings. This for Hauser is the primary condition for the existence of a public. He writes, In addition to sharing language and descriptions that constitute their institutions and social practices, a public's members must share a web of significant meanings that define a reference world of common actions, celebrations, and feelings. Under this theory, what we call a public sphere is constituted by the shared values and understandings of communal practice in the social world, and all of these shared meanings, importantly, can be located in discourse. As an example, Hauser cites the widespread public backlash to the 1994 passage of Proposition 187 in California, which prohibited the allocation of social services to children of undocumented immigrants. In response, legal actions were taken in California state and superior courts, and citizens across the country poured into national public forums to denounce the measure. This response for Hauser can be explained as a logical outcome of the California government violating a number of shared meanings across a diverse network of public spheres in America. Quote, From ideological commitments to protected marginalized groups to a more widespread and fundamental commitment to protect the well-being of children within the national borders, regardless of their parents' national status, the debate centered on an alarming abridgment of the meaning of America and a shared notion of the public good.
1: Hauser's discourse-based approach to examining public spheres raised even further provocative questions among rhetoric scholars. One of the most prominent came from Robert Asin in his 2000 article Seeking the Counter in Counterpublics. Asin's argument took up the notion of subaltern counterpublics raised by Nancy Fraser and problematized it. While he concedes that recognizing such formations, quote, illuminates the differential power relations among diverse publics, unquote, By showing how collectivities can express interests that run against ruling ideas, there is still an issue with naming what exactly is counter about counterpublics. Asen saw a risk in the reduction of publics and counterpublics to a binary opposition, or a narrow focus on specific people, places, or topics as solely constituting what makes a counterpublic counter. Michael Warner, writing in his famous 2002 book, Publics and Counterpublics, provides a shining example of how this reductionism of public and counterpublic discourse can create difficulties for understanding how marginalized groups speak truth to power. Warner recounts the backlash that suffragist and abolitionist Frances Wright received from Catherine Beecher, sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, for publicly lecturing on topics such as women's rights, abolition, birth control and labor rights. Beecher lambasted Wright, claiming that her, quote, mingling with men in stormy debate and standing up with barefaced impudence to lecture to a public assembly, unquote, was cause for severe contempt, concluding that, quote, I cannot conceive anything in the shape of woman more intolerably offensive and disgusting, unquote. The paradox of this example extends from the fact that both writers are women, speaking for what they purport to be women's rights and proper political behavior, but coming at the issue from vastly different perspectives. What historical and sociological criteria do we have to judge which of these writers is speaking from a counter-stance on women's place in society? For Warner, one concept that helps elucidate these problematic distinctions is circulation. While still maintaining a discourse-based approach to studying publics, Warner contends that it is not Quote, texts themselves which create publics, but the concatenation of texts through time. Only when a previously existing discourse can be supposed, and when a responding discourse can be postulated, can a text address a public, unquote. When we examine, for instance, the ways that the aforementioned rhetorics of Frances Wright and Catherine Beecher compare with prior rhetorics that address women's rights and roles in society, we can see more clearly that Wright seems to speak against the hegemonic patriarchal views of her time, while Beecher appears to be speaking in their favor. This is, perhaps ironically, why Beecher became a much more powerful and sought-out voice on these issues during her life. Her perspective, though it was the perspective of a woman, flattered the discourse and ideology of the patriarchal ruling hegemony. Warner's concept of public circulation also opened up public sphere theorists to consider even more ways that multiple publics can proliferate in response to one another. Because public rhetoric is never merely an interaction between one speaker and one addressee, it has the capacity to be taken up by anyone who is willing to listen, and forge the topics of new discussions that will circulate publicly themselves. One need look no further than a social media site like Twitter to see the ways that trending topics are circulated and taken up by different publics on the site, some of which are even self-consciously referred to by name, such as weird Twitter, left Twitter, academic Twitter, and so on. Within each of these online public spheres, there are examples of memes, posting formats, image macros, and GIFs, that have been established as norms of communication through rigorous circulation and uptake by different members across the site. However, in online spaces like Facebook and Twitter, circulation does not give us the whole picture of how discourse travels and gains critical publicity. In these spaces, one can hear ominous echoes of Habermas's critique of the centralization of media corporations as the primary regulators of public interaction. This raises important questions about the efficacy of online media as public spaces, especially when corporations have the sole responsibility for banning users and censuring discussion topics with relative impunity from public accountability measures. Since there is no democratic process by which their policies and regulations can be created, deliberated upon, or changed, large tech companies stand as perhaps the best testament to Habermas's structural transformation narrative of the trend toward a centralized, corporately dominated mass public sphere. Returning to the question of what makes a counterpublic counter to hegemonic ideas, another crucial response came from Catherine Squires in her 2002 communication theory article Rethinking the Black Public Sphere, an alternative vocabulary for multiple public spheres. In this work, Squires critiques scholars who have traditionally relied solely on identity markers, such as quote, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, race, or nationality, in essentializing rhetorics of the subaltern, which she observes does little to quote, help us understand the heterogeneity of marginalized groups, unquote. In response, Squires posits a new taxonomy for classifying counterpublics by their discursive actions rather than through mere identity, using the work of African-American and feminist theorists to advance her model. Following the work of political theorist Michael C. Dawson, Squires charts a brief history of fragmentation that occurred among Black public spheres throughout American history, many of which were, quote, fought on the axes of gender, color, and class, unquote, citing examples such as Booker T. Washington's and W.E.B. Du Bois's clashing stances on Black political ideology and action in the early 20th century. In spite of this seeming fragmentation and lack of synchronicity, Squires argues that subgroups within the black public sphere, quote, are simultaneously debating the black condition and creating new vehicles for discourse and political action, unquote. As such, Squires introduces three categories of publics to help differentiate the kinds of, quote, responses a marginalized public sphere might produce given existing political, economic, social and cultural conditions," unquote. The first possible response is creating enclave publics, which describes how marginalized people can use discourses and spaces that are safe from the purview and oppression of the state or other hegemonic actors in order to, quote, preserve culture, foster resistance, and create strategies for the future, unquote. Squires then uses the term counterpublic spheres to describe the second type of response, moments when marginalized people use the channels of dominant discourse to speak their truth to power, often strategically testing arguments, persuading outsiders, and fostering a culture of resistance in wider public spheres. Finally, Squires introduces the term satellite publics to refer to, quote, collectives that do not desire regular discourse or interdependency with other publics, unquote, but instead seek to maintain a clear sense of group identity and strengthen independent institutions that remain largely separate from dominant publics and counterpublics writ large. Each of these subtypes of publics, Squires emphasizes, represent discursive responses to material conditions of social and political life, which can reveal more interesting details about marginalized groups' ideological heterogeneity than focusing solely on group identity as the constituting factor of a counterpublic. This is only a partial snapshot of a rich theoretical tradition dedicated to critically studying and interrogating what it means to be public. But what do all of these studies have in common? Is there a unifying through-line that can be drawn through each, which helps us understand why there has been such a fixation on trying to define what we mean by the public sphere or counter-publicity? One potential answer can be drawn from a term of reference that you've likely heard used multiple times across this episode. Hegemony. In general, this term is used to refer to the dominant or ruling set of ideas that govern how a society functions on both a social and political level. The term was made famous by Italian neo-Marxist theorist and politician, Antonio Gramsci, who used it to ask some of the most provocative political questions that remain with us still today. For Gramsci, writing in the prison notebooks, a ruling hegemony can only be said to hold real power if it has the generalized consent of the masses who are subjected to its laws and norms. And importantly, as Dana Cloud notes, any current ruling hegemony, quote, is always subject to challenge and even revolution during which a rising group's forces seize hegemony, unquote. In other words, if the consent of a collective public shifts to a new set of ideas, we can generally observe the ruling hegemony to change as well whether through forceful overthrow of a governing structure or incremental shifts in policy. There are controversies over interpretations of Gramsci's theory, but we would argue it is best considered as a complement to Marx's idea of historical materialism. The idea that shifts of power throughout history can be explained as a series of dialectical responses to social, political, and other material conditions. In essence, a shift in the majority of the public's consent can be seen as a dialectical, and even rhetorically constituted, response to the status quo. This is where public sphere studies and rhetoric become especially important. All of the aforementioned theories of how to define public spheres have been asking variations on a similar theme. How can collective persuasion achieve social and political change? This question permeates nearly every study of publics and counterpublics in some form from the early work of Habermas, who showed how the 18th century European bourgeois collectively used literate practices to weaponize their private interests against monarchism and feudal societies, to Nancy Fraser's corrective narrative of this bourgeoisie's own exclusionary practices and the resistance to it, to Catherine Squires's elucidation of how marginalized public spheres generate multiplicitous new publics in response to their own cultural and political conditions. The question of collective persuasion is one without a single perfect answer. It is inherently contingent and responsive to situated socio-political circumstances. Thus, a rigorous understanding of history, politics, and social milieu is required in order to understand how the ruling hegemony is maintained, disrupted, and changed.
4: So then we want to talk to you
2: real quick. Want to talk to you real quick. Hi, actually I am heading out. If you've been paying attention to the news or social media lately, it's been hard to avoid discussions about Arizona Senator Kirsten Cinema. Cinema served as a member of the US. House of Representatives from 2013 to 2019 and has been serving as a Democratic member of the Senate since then. During that time, the Democrats won control of the House in 2018 and took a razor-thin majority of the Senate in 2020. All the while, cinema and Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia have come under significant scrutiny for being notoriously obstinate to the agendas of fellow Democrats as well as to the needs of their own constituents. Joe Manchin has been criticized for his ties to the fossil fuel industry, particularly the West Virginia-based coal brokerage firm Ener Systems Incorporated, which he founded, passed on to his son, and which he now owns stock valued between $1 and $5 million. Similarly, Cinema's policy record suggests that she will serve at the pleasure of essentially the highest bidder. Most recently, The Intercept reported that, quote, in the past two years, Cinema has received tens of thousands of dollars in maxed out donations from private equity partners and investment firm CEOs, end quote, who would stand to lose profits from corporate tax raises, such as those proposed in President Biden's recent Build Back Better spending plan. It comes as little surprise, then, that cinema has gone on record stating that she will not support the bill if it includes tax increases for corporations or wealthy individuals. As if that weren't enough, it has recently been unveiled by The Intercept that Cinema teaches a course titled Developing Grants and Fundraising at Arizona State University, which includes learning objectives such as, quote, learn diverse fundraising strategies, how to cultivate donors, how to appeal to large individual donors, and exercising strategies for opportunistic fundraising. In a moment that feels stranger than fiction, as Cinema was exiting her ASU classroom in early October 2021, she was accosted by activists from Living United for Change in Arizona, or LUCHA, who recorded themselves asking the senator why she was not supporting Biden's Build Back Better plan. The students followed Cinema into a nearby public restroom and continued recording as Cinema entered one of the stalls.
4: We knocked on doors for you to get you elected. And just how we got you elected, we can get you out of office if you don't support what you promised us. We need seven million citizenship for seven million. We need the
2: Bell, plan right now.
4: My name is Blanca. I was brought here to the United States when I was three years old. And in 2010, my grandparents both got deported because of SB 1070. And I'm here because I definitely believe that we need a pathway to citizenship. My grandfather passed away two weeks ago, and I was not able to go to Mexico and visit him because there is no pathway to citizenship. And if we have the opportunity to pass it right now, then we need to do it because there's millions of undocumented people, just like me, who share the same story or even worse things that happen to them because of SB 1070. And because of anti-immigrant legislation and this is the opportunity to pass it right now and we need you to we need to hold you accountable to what you told us what you promised us that you were going to pass when we knocked on doors for you it's not right
2: as she exited the bathroom the students continued to follow her to another room chanting In the aftermath of this public protest, a firestorm of media criticism descended on the student activists. Kathleen Walsh, writing in The Independent, claimed that the activists were, quote, undermining their efforts, end quote, by confronting the senator in what was supposed to be a private space. Walsh writes, quote, where does a public restroom fall in the realm of public spaces, end quote glibly comparing the student protest to the violent right-wing January 6th protest, and claiming that both political actions prompted a need to, quote, talk about boundaries. Quote, At the very least, couldn't the organizers have waited for cinema outside the bathroom doors? Walsh continues, The bathroom, according to critics like Walsh, needs to be off-limits for civil disobedience. Quote, there is a big difference, she writes, between hassling a politician at a restaurant or even outside their home, and hassling a politician as they, and various others, wipe their bums, End quote. Fellow Democratic legislators also joined in the critiques of the activist tactics. Emails leaked to Axios revealed a joint statement from the Senate Democratic leadership team which reads, quote, protests are one of the most powerful tools for a vibrant democracy. That is why the right to peacefully assemble and the right to exercise freedom of speech are enshrined in the First Amendment to the Constitution, and we are committed to fiercely protecting those rights. Following someone into a bathroom and filming the encounter is plainly inappropriate and unacceptable, and it crosses a clear line. What happened in that video was a violation of Senator Cinema's privacy that has no place in our public discourse, and we resolutely condemn it." Incidentally, the statement was not able to be released as coming from the Senate Democratic leadership team, since one of its most prominent members, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, refused to sign on unless language was added condemning Sinema's political views and her position on the Build Back Better plan. Sanders' fellow committee members would not accept this addition, and a statement from the committee has not been publicly released as of the time of this recording. Looking at the language of that statement, the contention that, quote, "...protests are one of the most powerful tools for a vibrant democracy," actually contains a bit of dark irony. The existence of protests and other actions that fall outside the realm of, quote-unquote, "...normal democratic deliberation and political participation," can actually be read as signs that a democracy is not working in a vibrant or even basically functional way. Another way of looking at the issue is to view protests as a logical consequence of systemic dysfunction, a sign that people in power are not able to be held accountable by any other civil means. As rhetorical scholar Dana Cloud has noted, both the term civility and the discursive acts associated with it have historically been used to, quote, disguise rather than define relations of inequality, end quote, and at their worst, quote, the discourse of civilization has justified imperialist invasion, occupation, and slaughter of peoples throughout modern history, end quote. Cloud continues, quote, Today, the term civility is invoked alongside the ideal of a universal citizen in neoliberal capitalism and its ostensibly fair civil rules of engagement. In other words, any vision of one's civic responsibility and participation is a fantasy of democracy." End quote. And in the grand scheme, who is truly being uncivil in this instance, the student activists or Kirsten Cinema herself? By abrogating promises to her most vulnerable constituents, especially those who performed the grueling public work of helping her to get elected, is she not exhibiting incivility by both legislating in a manner that is hostile to ordinary constituents and refusing to even answer their questions? What politicians like cinema have come to represent is manifestations of public sphere theorists' gravest warnings, people in political power serving completely at the whim of the privileged few, and refusing to engage in transparent deliberation or dialogue with vulnerable constituents. In the meantime, politicians claim sanctuary from criticism on the basis of protecting their own personal privacy, while they consistently make decisions that destroy the privacy, livelihoods, and lives of those they are supposed to represent. The question is worth asking again, who is being uncivil here? Who is actually acting in a manner that erodes our trust in public institutions and the norms of public discourse, thereby weakening those institutions and norms themselves? Who is doing more to engender feelings of anger and mistrust in the legitimacy of American democracy? While this kind of counter-public activism can be seen in large part as a logical response to the decline in democracy under global capitalism, there is some hope to be gleaned by looking to the rhetorical history of previous activist movements. As Twitter user at CharlotteIrene8 pointed out in a widely circulated response to the cinema controversy, Quote, the folks shocked by Kirsten Cinema being followed into a bathroom by her constituents would HATE the queer activism of the 70s and 80s, end quote. One scholar who traced this history was Daniel Brower, whose work in public sphere theory helped synthesize this trajectory of research with queer theory and queer perspectives. Brower focused much of his work on the rhetoric of the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, also known as ACT UP. Brower details the power of the AIDS Coalition in one of his seminal works, Acting Up in Congressional Hearings, a chapter from the collection Counterpublics and the State, co-edited with Robert Asin. He argues that ACT UP's actions have been historically successful because of their ability to quote-unquote oscillate between provocative public demonstrations that helped shape national attitudes towards the AIDS epidemic, and rhetorically savvy performances within spheres of power that helped ensure material victories for AIDS vulnerable people. Between 1987 and 1989, ACT UP members occupied the New York Stock Exchange on Wall Street multiple times. They also shut down the FDA building in Rockville, Maryland, demanding expanded access to AZT, one of the only experimental drugs used to treat and prevent AIDS at the time, and sold at exorbitantly high prices by the drug company Burroughs Welcome. During these demonstrations, ACT UP members used multiple forms of protests that disrupted public life in order to show that the AIDS epidemic was not something that could be ignored. It needed to be made into a literal impediment to the functioning of the system. These tactics included die-ins, in which activists would lie on the ground pretending to be dead, often holding signs or fake tombstones inscribed with slogans such as killed by the FDA, killed by the system, or died so Burroughs Welcome could make profits. In response to their third Wall Street demonstration in September of 1989, Burroughs Welcome reduced the price of AZT by nearly 40%, These demonstrations also garnered widespread national news attention and helped to legitimize the AIDS epidemic as an activist cause with real political stakes. Brower notes that in addition to these acts of high-profile, publicly provocative activism, ACT UP members leveraged their expertise in speaking to the strong public of the US House of Representatives about the experiences of people afflicted with and vulnerable to AIDS. In addition, they rhetorically position themselves as reversing the surveillance gaze of the state upon them, claiming that, quote, it is the federal government that is under surveillance by ACT UP, end quote, referring to the group's monitoring of the National Institute of Allergic and Infectious Diseases and the handling of its experimental AIDS treatment programs. Brower concludes his chapter by emphasizing the multiplicitous power that Act Up was able to wield due to its oscillation between different modes of strategic counter-publicity. Quote, In an important sense, hearing testimony functions as a ritual of citizenship, but the relationship that activists presume with their government is a far cry from grateful supplication. As autodidactic medical experts, and as accomplished veterans of civil disobedience, ACT UP activists approach the state as critics and reformers." End quote. In summation, through an understanding of public protest informed by theories of publics, counterpublics, and hegemony, we can think more deeply about the political interventions of activists in public policy debates. Specifically, we can move beyond reactionary dismissals of embodied protests as uncouth or uncivil, towards a broader view of how our very notions of civility are shaped by the same material and discursive power dynamics that inspire protests in the first place. This episode was originally prepared as a submission for the 2021 Rhetoric Society of America Summer Institute workshop on The Trouble with publics and Counterpublics. The workshop unfortunately did not take place due to the unexpected passing of Dr. Daniel Brower, who was to be one of the workshop's leaders. Dan Brower was a critical force in rhetorical studies, public sphere theory, and queer studies, a strong mentor, friend, and a crucial voice across academic fields. It is in this spirit that we humbly dedicate this episode to the memory of Dr. Daniel Brower. Our show today was produced by Calvin Pollack, Alex Helberg, Benjamin Williams, Sophie Wadzak, and Mike Loudenbach, with editing work by Alex and Mike. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice, and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.